there, and welcome back to Nature Boost. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation. So I went to bed the other night, and my mind always thinks about random stuff before I fall asleep. How come my local Fazoli's closed down? I love those breadsticks. Uh, would it be weird if I painted my dog's toenails? Who has my birth certificate? Do I need to make a dentist appointment? Just, you know, random stuff that goes through my head. And then I thought of this. It's wintertime. Where are all the reptiles? Are they alive? You don't see them in the winter months. So what are they up to? What are they doing? Lucky for me, I have Missouri's herpetologist, Jeff Brigler, on speed dial. Jeff Brigler, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking about it the other night, watching the birds, and, you know, you see the squirrels and everything. I just thought, what are reptiles? What are snakes? What are turtles? What are lizards and frogs? You know, how are they surviving the winter? So I wanted to get into that with you today. I think it's pretty interesting how these types of animals survive this cold season. So while doing some research for this episode, I was coming across a lot of a lot of terms. I was learning about brumation and ectothermic and endothermic animals. So can you can you kind of explain a little bit about that for us? Well, our amphibian and reptiles of our state are ectothermic. Okay. Meaning they they have to get their heat from external sources. I see. So like a snake basking in the sun warms up, or they go deeper under the ground from the frost line to warm up. So whatever the temperature is outside that they're exposed to, that's the temperature they're going to be unless they go to an object to absorb heat back in. So for amphibians and reptiles, they really don't hibernate. Uh, Hibernate means they're in an inactive state mainly. Uh, They're using fat reserves and stuff. It's really the correct term is brumation. Brumation. Yeah, and they're, they're basically inactive, but they're still alert in most cases. So if it warms up outside like it has in the last few weeks, you might see a snake pop out of its den and sun for a little bit and bask to warm up, and then it might go back down. If it gets extremely cold outside, that same snake might crawl deeper into the crevices to get farther into the ground to get below the frost line. So they're always active. They're just not fast. They're slow. Their metabolic rates are very slow. Same thing with a turtle. Who hasn't seen a turtle under the ice? And they say, oh my gosh, it's moving. Well, they're not inactive. They're still moving slightly under the water. They're just going to be slow. They're going to absorb the water, absorb their oxygen under the water, and then just low, low metabolic rates. Okay, so snakes, for instance, let's let's start with that. So um, these are ectothermic, cold, kind of cold-blooded mm-hmm. animals. Um, you say they go into dens in the wintertime? Some snakes do. Some are solitary. Some may all go to the same location. So it depends on the species of snakes. So some species like to overwinter in crayfish burrows. And there might be a certain two or three acres where there's a lot of crayfish burrows. So that's where a lot of these snakes will go because they can get below the ground. Or it might be the nice south-facing slope with a lot of rocky crevices. So some of the rattlesnakes, like timber rattlesnakes, might bunch up in a den site. Mm-hmm. Uh, Massasauga rattlesnakes, which is a rare snake in our state, will bunch up. But most snakes are more solitary. They're going to spread out. They might go into a log or underneath deep crevices, up a steep bluff or something, anywhere they can get underneath out of the weather. Okay. And so when they start this brumation process over the colder months, so I would assume they start finding a place to hunker down in the fall? Yeah, usually October, the animals start moving to their overwintering sites. Okay. And there will be some massive migrations. 
at, at some point in time to get there. Wow. And then the winter will occur. Now, it slightly differs a little bit for amphibians and reptiles. Uh, reptiles prefer the sun. They like to be warm. Mm -hmm. Amphibians, you don't see those very often. They like to stay near water. They have moist skin. So they can tolerate colder conditions. So coming up soon in the next month, some of our salamanders are going to start breeding. Right. Even though it's cold outside, they yeah. can tolerate in the 30s. They can tolerate a snow melt and move over land. So they can tolerate colder temperatures and still be active, whereas reptiles really have to have 60, 70 degree temperatures to be really active to keep moving. Okay. So the amphibians are a little bit more tolerable of, of mm -hmm. that of that cold weather. Interesting. Okay. Another term that I was uh, coming across a lot while doing research for this episode was this term for snakes, and it's called a hibernaculum. Tell us what that is. Well, uh, the big term of it is a lot of animals are going to one place to overwinter. Uh, typically in the amphibians and reptiles, we use overwintering. That's what the term you use. Okay. Yes, because hibernation, you think of a bear hibernating or a groundhog hibernating, or some other animal. Well, amphibians and reptiles are not totally knocked out. Uh, they are active. If it warms up, they're going to warm up. Mm -hmm. If it gets colder, they're going to get colder. So they're really going to a defined overwintering site. So these snakes, do they, whenever they go in these um, dens, if they're not solitary, can they overwinter with other species of snakes? Do you typically find different species yeah. of snakes in one? Yes, it, it can okay. happen. A lot okay. of times it's dominated by one, but not always. Uh, some of our interesting features is old rock-lined whales that have been left and abandoned. So an old well where you used to drop a bucket in right. and pull water out, there's rocks all along the side. And usually they're covered. And if you get down in those, sometimes there can be 50 or 60 snakes of five to six species like black rat snakes, racers, garter snakes, all within this well chamber because it's an ideal place because they can drop lower if they need to warm up. Right. Or they can come back up and the rocks around there. Old cisterns that used to be in houses. Yeah. That have rock areas that are abandoned. Snakes are probably using those in some cases. The rock kind of holds that yes, warm. The rock, it's a place to seek shelter. This concept that, like in Missouri, we have a lot of caves and the concept that you go in these caves in the winter and here's all these snakes in there. I'm just going to tell you, if you can get in that cave and there's a bunch of snakes, they're dead because every predator will come in there and eat them. They're <gasps> inactive. So oh, raccoons would eat them. Yeah. Skunks would eat them. They have to get in tight, confined spots, protected that things cannot get to them because they're not going to be fast enough to get away from you or be able to even strike you. So they have a lot of different adaptations to find these really tight, secure locations. And is that just because that they're trying to conserve energy because they're in like this low power mode? Is that why they're a little yeah, bit more slow moving? They're and, cold yeah. temperatures, low metabolic rate. They're very, very slow. Best time to photograph them because they're not going to move. <laughs> Yeah, good uh, point. They're not yeah. fast at all. Uh, now, if you put a heat lamp on them for about 30 or 40 minutes, yeah, they're going to start coming out of it and start getting more active. And then the snake may rattle then. Sure. But it's not sure. going to when it's really cold. So you brought up something interesting. We live in Missouri. We're one of those states where, you know, oh, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, you know. And we're recording this in January right now. And we've actually experienced some kind of spring-like days. Mm -hmm. So they're aware enough to kind of, oh, hey, it's warm enough I could come out and then obviously it's getting back to we're in like cold rainy wet weather and they just kind of know to go back in their yes. in their den and they'll stay close to the den site mm -hmm. and then they'll go back in it now every winter's different the worst winters for amphibians and reptiles are 
extremely cold, dry winters without snow. The snow provides insulation on the ground, and it provides moisture. The biggest threat for a lot of these animals is dehydration, Mm. not the temperature, because they can get deeper underground. So a good snowy, cold winter, they're going to be fine. A very dry, cold winter with no moisture, more will probably die. Yeah, okay. And then you got this kind of back and forth. And the back and forth's okay as long as it doesn't go too far. So the snakes are coming out, but if they get heated up too much, they're going to start getting hungry. Mm-hmm. We need their metabolic rates to be lower. But if they're getting hungry, well, is there any food out? So there's a balance there. That trade-off varies back and forth. And then if you get a cold snap after they come out very quickly, are they fast enough to get back underground? Like a t- box turtle digging back underneath the ground. So you kind of like to see the temperatures be more winter-like, but yeah. not get in the 70s too much. Right. But Animals will come out. There will be garter snakes that will pop out on top of snow sometimes when it warms up in the 60s and 70s. Interesting. See, it's just, it's crazy to me that they're able to kind of go back and forth like that. So talking with the snakes, about when do we start to see them become more active in the spring? When do you think they're really have all finally left like their overwintering sites? It's typically, depending on the state, if you're in North Missouri or South Missouri, but typically mid to late March into mid-April, things will start emerging. And time frame, as a biologist, we look at time frame a lot, but we really base it on soil temperature. That tells us. And usually when that soil temperature is getting to about 50, 55 degrees, we know animals are going to start coming out of their den sites. And it's always funny in the research I do, I go up to north central and northwest Missouri in March to look for snakes. And somebody's like, why are you going up north to look for snakes? Well, it's prairies. The sun is beating down, warming the soil faster than it is under the forest canopy. So I go north to work on snakes earlier in the year, and then I'll go into the Ozarks about a month later because it's going to take that soil temperature a little bit longer to heat up because it's under canopy. Right. That makes total sense. Absolutely. Okay. So with this term brumation, now this is something that all reptiles and amphibians Mm -hmm. go through, this, this process of brumation. They all brumate, but there are some exceptions to the rules on some animals can adapt differently to certain situations. And mm-hmm. and so, like in general, amphibians and reptiles, they have to get out of the freezing temperatures. So they have a couple of mechanisms to do that. One, you get beneath the ground, underneath rocks, logs, in crevices, in crayfish burrows, under objects, below the frost line, mm-hmm. and have enough room that you can go deeper if you need to or come back to the surface depending on the temperature. Or you can do like a lot of the aquatic turtles and even some of our frogs like bullfrogs that overwinter on the bottom of lakes and ponds. So they just go to the bottom of the pond because it's not going to freeze there. And they live at the base of the pond underneath rocks and logs or just sitting on the bottom. And they're able to get oxygen down there? Yes. It's extremely cold. The water is highly saturated with oxygen. So colder water holds more oxygen. Okay. Their metabolically rates are very, very low. So they can absorb enough oxygen through their skin at that low rate to survive. That's why you see a snapping turtle sometimes walking very slowly under the ice because they can talk. Now, if that pond or wetland froze solid, they would be in trouble. And they'd have to find a new place to... If they can get out. If they can get out. Right, right. So that's how that works. But what's intriguing, so a lot of these animals have to have a means to get out of it, but not all of them do. Mm -hmm. And there are some species in our state, they're more northern distribution species that can go up into Canada farther, 
and they only overwinter underneath the leaf litter. Okay. And that's not good in no, the winter. Yeah, I feel Especially like... if you're way up north and it's getting to minus 10, yeah. minus 20. Yeah. And, and these frogs that are here, they're like the two species of gray tree frogs, the spring peeper, the boreal coarse frog, and the wood frog. And what's cool about these animals is they have the ability to freeze. They can freeze their bodies. Yeah, and they're like an ice cube. So because they only overwinter underneath leaf litter, they have to have some adaptation because they're not getting below the ground. So, so what's unique about these animals and how can they do that? Well, it's a very interesting process. Uh, don't think uh, the government would love to learn how to do this in people, but we just don't produce the right things in our blood sometimes. But what happens to a frog? Let's just say it's a wood frog out in the forest underneath the leaf litter, and we're getting very cold. And what's going to happen is it's going to start freezing its skin, kind of like we can get frostbite very easily. Yeah, yeah. And frostbite, when we get it, it sucks out all your moisture, and it's deadly. I mean, it's, it's going to cause limb loss or finger loss, too. So on these animals, what they do is they, when they start freezing, they'll start being hard. Their eyes will turn white. In the process, there's a special protein in their blood. And what that protein does is it starts freezing the water in their blood system first. And it starts sucking out the water out of the cells around it. But then the most important thing they produce, we call it a prior protectant, or it could be an antifreeze. Their liver produces massive amounts of like a glucose, mm -hmm. a sugar. Sugar, yeah. And that sugar pumps into all the cells and fills them. They shrink down. But the, what that sugar is doing is it keeps those cells from collapsing because if they collapse and freeze, that frog is dead. It's dead, yeah. Just like we would be right. if frozen. Right, And so it maintains the cell structure on that. And then after that happens, the whole frog will freeze. It it will not be breathing. It heartbeat will not work. It will not have brain functions whatsoever. If you picked it up, it's like an ice cube. It's like hard as and, a and, rock. Yeah. yeah. And so they just sit there like that in that state. Now, if you're in a Canada, they may be in that state for a long time. The research has shown they can go through freeze-thaw cycles. So if it warms back up, they can come back out. Uh, how many times, we don't really know. Like but within a year, like yes, within the season. it can season. be multiple times. Now, it takes, from what I know, it takes about an hour for them to come out of it because they got to thaw back out. Well, they're pretty small, too. Yes, so, I mean, some of yeah. them. Yeah, the wood frog's about two to two and a half inches. Peepers are only about an inch. Right. But this is their adaptation to living underneath the leaf litter. And it's, it's a very cool mechanism for these animals to survive. Now, I've never found one. I was just going to ask if you've ever people seen have one. always asked me. I've yeah. seen pictures. And, and do they do it here in Missouri? Because we're on the southern edge of some of these northern species range. Right. I, I'm sure they do. The yeah. odds of us finding it would be very, very difficult to right. say the least. Right. But, oh, my gosh. So yeah. it's the, it's they've basically evolved to, to have that glucose kind of acting as an antifreeze in, in their yeah, system. And it, yeah, and it packs into those cells, keeps that structure, keeps them from getting further dehydration. Whereas in us, all of our moisture sucks out. Once that happens, your cells are going to collapse. Right. And there's nothing you can do. And we don't produce that special protein and put our livers don't produce a ton of glucose to do this functioning, to go into this cryopreservation state. It's like something out of a sci-fi movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. 
If if they if they did figure that out, would you do it? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody else has to go first. <laughs> we, need, we need a guinea a guinea pig for that. Okay, so it's only frogs that can do that. Frogs that we're aware of. That you're okay. Uh, yeah. And like so I which said, ones were? So in Missouri, I mean, I'm sure there's other ones. The spring peeper, the two species of gray tree frog, the boreal coarse frog, and the wood frog. And the wood frog. Okay. So those are the ones. Now, some turtles, even our box turtles, they kind of have a free resistance. I mean, they can tolerate a few days, several days, being ex- really cold, almost frozen, and still come out of it. Now, what they typically do, the box turtles, is they dig in under the leaf litter a few inches. But if it gets colder, they'll... They'll go further they'll, they'll, down. Yeah, they'll they'll dig a little deeper Yeah, and, uh, and do that. Now, some hatchling turtles, especially like painted turtles, that have a very northern distribution, and we're learning more about this every day, but they do some super cooling meaning they can they can lower their uh, their temperature in their bodies below the freezing point basically okay Kind of wow. like how air conditioners kind of work and stuff, too. So okay. hatchlings sometimes, because they're in their nest still, mm-hmm. if it gets extremely cold, they can tolerate it for a certain amount of time due, due to super cooling because it's not freezing in their body. And okay. they have that ability to do it. Outside of that, we don't know of any other stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised one day. There's always something we learn sure. that we don't see. But it's usually all of these types of adaptations are really for these species that are really more northern driven okay. that need these types of adaptations right. to survive. Right, understood. So turtles basically just kind of burrow into the soil then to, to most survive. Of most of our of most of our turtles overwinter actually in the water. Oh, really? And in the bottom of lakes and ponds, ditches, deep ditches and stuff. Not all though. I mean, we have some species like the box turtles, the chicken turtle, yellow mud turtle, those species overwinter on land. And so they dig in loose sandy soils. They dig deeper if they need to. Mm -hmm. And so, but the brunt of them are actually in water. So if I'm scuba diving in a river in the Ozarks in February, I might find 20 or 30 map turtles on the bottom of the river all crammed underneath a log or root wad on the really? bottom. And they're just sitting there. Yeah, just trying to conserve energy. Yeah, and, and the yeah. water's pretty cold. I mean, right. and stuff. But, of course, if it gets up to 70 degrees and the sun starts coming out, they may pop up and bask for a couple of days. Well, and I would think that would be a good thing for them to have kind of just some periodic warmer uh, a little times. bit, A little bit would be as long as they have, it's not too long. Exactly. So they like need not, food. Right, right. But short term, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sunlight's great for us. Right. Oh, yeah. Especially yeah. in the winter. <laughs> and people need to get more sunlight in the winter. The, the animals are telling you that. Uh, yeah. They, they need that for vitamin D production and growth. So getting that basking helps their growth, their metabolism. It helps to clear off parasites on their body somewhat. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of positive benefits. And I always encourage people, even my kids and stuff, in the winter, get out. Get outside. And if you get a warm day, Wear a T-shirt. Right. We all get doom and gloom in late winter because of all the cloudy days. But a lot of that has to do with we need sunlight. Because we need sunlight. Absolutely. And, and, and it's one of the best things to do to get out in it and expose your skin to it when you can and take advantage of it. Because these animals are doing the same thing. Well, and when you explain it like this, how they're overwintering in these colder months, it makes so much sense why you really start to see them crossing roads in the spring and they're they're trying to um you know soak up that that sunlight and they're trying to look for some food 
food and they're trying to look for a mate. They, in the springtime, you really do see a lot of turtles like crossing roads and you, you see they're, you know, they're more active. Yeah, they're definitely more active. They're moving, they're mating, establishing their territory. Same thing if you're floating in Ozark River in the springtime on a sunny day. The turtles are basking. Mm -hmm. But then when the middle of summer comes, when it gets hot, they might bask a little bit in the morning, but then they're going to get too hot. So you don't see them as much. If it's a cloudy day on an Ozark stream in the middle of the summer, they may not be out at all. So every day varies a little bit. So sometimes we do counts of turtles on river and we have to pick the right day to float so we get the best population estimate for that river by how many turtles are basking on those sites. Interesting. I never really thought about that they could overheat, that they could get too much. Oh, yeah. If you keep amphibians and reptiles, there's a preferred range for them. Mm -hmm. And, And animals are different. Like collared lizards like it in the upper 80s and 90s. Most lizards can't tolerate that. Yeah. So they become active early in the morning to heat up, forage and feed. They go back under rocks and logs during the heat of the day. Then they come back out right before evening and, mm-hmm. and do that. So it varies. So in the spring, everybody wants to be out in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the fall, they still want to be in the sun, but they're all moving back to where they're going to overwinter. And do they typically overwinter in the same area or uh, does it just depend? Do they no, do they have that, the same range? It's, yes. We don't give animals enough credit. It's just like us. We're driving home. We drive to work. They have their established territories. Yeah. So let's talk about a species like the crawfish frog. They overwinter in crayfish burrows. Mm-hmm. And crayfish burrows can be very deep, so they can drop down really low or come back up. Well, in February and March, they're going to start migrating to a nearby fishless pond to breed in. Here's this one hole this crawfish frog's been living in. Mm-hmm. He might make it to that pond the first night, but if he doesn't, he might stop over and occupy another hole on the way. When he leaves, the odds are pretty high he's going to occupy that same hole. But more importantly, he's going to come back to that same hole he lived most of his year in. Yeah. And he'll keep returning to that same hole as if 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 it's still there. And it's the same thing with any animal. Path of least resistance, you know, where they go. You have to sit and watch. I mean, I know at my house where this racer always will be every day. I just have to look and not mess with it. Yeah. I know it's there. Some people already know where that toad is. But if you really sit back, just sit back and watch. They're going to do the same thing every day. They have their territories. They have their homes. And box turtles are the same way. They will return back to where they like to overwinter. The thing they do is they have little, we call them mini apartments. (laughs) They're called (laughs) Farms, F-O-R-M. But what they'll do in their territory, they may go a long distance, and this one spot is where they're going to stay for like a vacation for several weeks. And this may be a pile of leaves, and they'll sleep in there at night. They come back and forage and feed. Then they might move again for a couple of weeks. But eventually, they're going to come back for the winter back to this spot. And we don't give a lot of these animals enough credit that most of them are probably returning exactly where they came from. And at my house, down by the creek, I've been monitoring this one female box turtle for almost seven years. Wow. And she comes back to the same little dimple in the woods with leaf litter to overwinter. And I check on her all winter. I kind of peek down and open it up and I put leaves back on her. She's there. She'll show up late October. Now, when I get a really warm, sunny day, I will drive past her with the four-wheeler and I'll stop to see if she's sunning a little bit. And sometimes she will be. But when it's super cold and the snow's there, I mean, she's dug down deeper. And then she'll leave 
Come about mid-April, she'll disappear and I won't see her again. But come October, I'll find her again because she comes back to the exact same spot. And this has been seven years in a row. Is this, okay, do you remember when I came to your property to record our episode yes. on snakes? You, we walked right past and it. We, I yep. remember. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the same one you're talking yep, about? Yeah, and she's in there right now. Oh, my hole. gosh. Creatures of habit. Yeah, and I've always worried, well, what's it going to be like the day when she doesn't come back? Oh, gosh. probably something bad it, happened. Yeah. But, again, pay attention to nature. I mean, if I ever found a wood frog under leaf litter somewhere, the odds are that's the spot to go every year. Right. It's just really hard to find that. But and uh, do you think a lot of that has to do with, you know, their safety and their survival? They kind of yeah. repeat these same That's where they know, they know yeah. this territory They've done well here. They've survived here a long time. But in general, they're a creature of habit, just like we are. We take the same paths to work every day. Or, right. Uh, same thing on a campus. Think about all the sidewalks. There will be a spot where the path of least resistance, where everybody's going to walk and a new trail is because it's shorter. Yeah. I mean, th- yeah. everybody does this. True. I mean, and just naturally you do these things and as you travel and, and go about on your merry way. And these animals do the same thing. And it's cool. I mean, a turtle that's basking on this certain log is probably going to bask on that log every day. Now, in the afternoon, it might bask somewhere else because the sun angle might be better over here. Right, right. So they're going to adjust. Right. But just think, you got to put a lot of time and energy to be sitting there. But it's amazing sometimes the things we can learn by just sitting in a chair with a pair of binoculars and sitting back. And just and, observing. And, and observing and watching. Yeah. And sometimes that's the best approach for some of the endangered turtles because they're more likely to bask and we know they're there. Right, sure. And, and other things, so. Ah, oh, fascinating. Well, thank you for shedding some light on this. I just kind of randomly had this thought the other day of what are our, you know, turtles and our, our lizards friends and, you know, what are, what are our frogs doing this time of year? Because obviously we're not seeing them, so they're just kind of in low power mode. They're conserving their energy and they're waiting for for the temperatures to warm up. So one thing I did want to briefly touch on as we wrap this up is you have worked very, very hard on one of MDC's new publications. It's a third edition, right, of Mm -hmm. the Amphibian and Reptile Guidebook. So that's out there now. People can buy that on our nature shop online. Yeah, it's been out for about a year now. We've worked on it hard for several years. It's the revised expanded edition. So there's a lot of new information, uh, new photos, new species accounts, a lot of updated information. And to keep with the spirit of our book, the co-author Tom Johnson's part of the book, and we kept with his artwork and illustrations. So the new cover is more artwork by Tom and artwork throughout the book, which makes it a little bit more special. That's wonderful. It's even got some new stuff in it as far as distribution maps and different information on habitats and breeding and names. And it's got a uh, guide on tadpoles, too. Yeah, on the back, we have all the artwork for all the tadpoles and salamander larvae that were completed by Tom Johnson, too. The previous book did not have all of them, so we expanded upon that. There's new species added because we find new species. Our genetics change some of the species where we once thought these were all the same, and it winds up being two different types of animals, so they get new accounts. So we do have quite a few new accounts in the book, but it's definitely a revised, expanded version, almost 100 pages more. Oh, wow. 
Wow. Yeah, a lot of updated photos, a lot of new photos. And we actually were able to provide some habitat photos for a large number of the species throughout the accounts, too. And, and rarely are you able to do that in most amphibian and reptile books. So it was kind of nice to show some of the key features of habitat that certain species really like. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. I think that would be a great resource for people who are really interested in, in learning about reptiles and amphibians. And I'm sure you get questions all of the time yeah. of, hey, what is this? You know, I found this in my backyard or, you know. Well, yeah, and it's like today, go in the gray tree frog section or the wood frog section. There's going to be something talking about cryoprotectants yeah. a little bit. Every species, you, somewhere in there are the remarks, I'm always looking for some interesting fact that we don't know or something like narrow mouth toads just specialize on ants and termites more and their bodies and how they adapt to that. So sometimes some of the remarks and stuff will be some really cool things that we don't think about. And a lot of it is just from my personal observations, sitting out in my yard or paying attention to finding certain things. And a lot of the photos, I have favorite photos that I've taken because I took a lot of these photos. I'll remember where I took them, Mm -hmm. helping the pose these animals in their natural conditions, but they all have a story behind them. Each photo does. I could probably talk to people day after day on every animal and where I photograph it, what that animal did that day. Tips on photographing amphibians and reptiles. Some are very easy. Some are extremely hard. <laughs> I and believe it. So it's fun to know that we did complete this book and it is available. A lot of people will be very interested in this expanded edition. Awesome. Well, it's the Amphibians and Reptiles of Missouri guidebook. You can find it online, available for purchase at mdcnatureshop.com. So you should check it out. Jeff, thanks so much for shedding light on this for me today. You've really gave, given me some, some great information and I think told us our listeners a lot of stuff they probably didn't know. So I thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks again to Missouri State Herpetologist Jeff Brigler. And thanks to you for tuning in to another episode of Nature Boost. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation, urging you to get your daily dose of the outdoors.